Each week we're going to have somebody sitting in the chair. This week, uh, Pastor Alicia is going to come up after my message. But Carol was sitting in the back, uh, back there, and this flower and everything was sitting right up over here. And as she was looking, it says, I'm hanged. <laughs> we don't want to make it so ominous when you come to the chair. So I moved the flowers back over here so you can see I'm changed. And we'd love to have some of you come in the weeks ahead. And also the cards that are there, we'll have a time of response at the end. But once you hang on to those cards after you think about change in your life, because comes Easter, we're going to have a number of people share what's on the cards as how Christ has touched their lives. So anyhow, it won't be so ominous. We encourage you to think about the possibility of uh, sitting in the chair during the service, okay? Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we have already sung songs about the, the special place of your son, Jesus. We think of the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Father, and the implications of that are staggering for us. And the marvelous grace of our, our Savior, Jesus. Father, give us a focus for a moment as we think about transformation, the call for transformation. Amen. I really do appreciate immensely our Lenten series this year. As we journey the Lenten series, as we journey through John's gospel. And as we think about being changed, and that is not just a one-time dynamic, that's change to be changed, because it's a continual process. God is continually working with us, and I really believe that the greatest gift we have is that God says, I will journey with you in your experiences, in your journey in life. What a privilege we have that the Spirit of God will work with us. Last week, as we looked at the first part of the book of John, the first 18 verses, he establishes what I would say a theoretical basis for who Jesus is, his identity. He explains that in beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He establishes the primary identity of Jesus, who is deity, who is fully God. He also talks about his humanity, his full humanity, as he came in the flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the Lord God. And he came to bring light to the world in the midst of darkness. And the light that he brings is the, is the powerful message that we can become truly children of God. There's a transformation that can happen in anybody's life as they come to encounter and experience and understand Jesus. There's a transformation that occurs and we become his special people, his special children. But the beauty of the rest of the chapter of chapter 1 is that it, it shows the experiences and the stories of people who had initial encounters with Jesus. This chapter, the rest of it, is full of excitement. I encourage you in this week to take, when you go home, read this chapter again and again. I read it again and again because at first reading, you kind of go, ho, ho, hum. But as you continue to read and move into this chapter, it is absolutely, the whole chapter is full of excitement. Full of excitement is people who have heard about Jesus and come to understand who his identity is. There's just this all kinds of excitement as people come to see him. It's amazing, this chapter. It's amazing the stories. It's amazing the affirmations that they give of Christ. And I want to think as I, before we turn to this passage, what was it like for you when you first heard about Jesus? When you heard about the story of Christ for the first time, what was it like when you first came to encounter Jesus? What was what I would call the come and see moment for you? 
when all of a sudden the lights went on and you realized this is something powerful, the reality of who Jesus is. I hope that was a special experience for you. And I, throughout the whole message, the, the theme is come and see. Everybody in this passage is come and see and they're encouraging people to come and see Jesus. Come to experience him. I can remember my experience of coming to Christ. I grew up in a Christian home, so I heard about Jesus when I was a wee little boy. But I came to faith when I was 13 years old at a camp, and, and it was an exciting experience. It really was. But what I became, which was a, a real problem, is I went home and became very, very self-righteous. I had all this zeal for Jesus, and I was going to turn the world upside down. And what's wrong with the next person? Why don't they have any of the same zeal for Jesus? And I became very self-righteous, and God had to deal with me in a very special way. Because it's about everybody coming to see him. So turn to John chapter 1. Take your Bibles out, please. They're in front of you. I want you to follow with me to get the excitement of this chapter, to come and see together with Jesus as we see him in this passage. This is an expanded version of the passage that was just read in Matthew. But I want you to notice, again, I want to emphasize the excitement and throughout this passage, how it builds as people encounter Jesus and they're invited to come and see. Again, the stories of people who found the true Savior. So we're going to go through the passage. There's three sections to it. The first part is 19 through 34, and I want to read it since we didn't read it. And then I want to make some observations. And the question I want you to think about is, who are you? Because that's the question that's raised. It isn't in this section, the come and see, but in the other sections, you see the term, come and see, come and see. But it's here, as John the Baptist is spoken of first in this section. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders, starting at verse 19, in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask who he was. There was all this fervor around this, this so-called prophet John the Baptist, and they were wondering. So they asked who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the, the prophet? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who, send, who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. The Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize you with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, and the thongs of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened in Bethany, the other side of the Jordan, when John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and look what he said. Unbelievable. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first encounter of John. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I am baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize the water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen it, and I testify that this is God's 
chosen one. Folks, I don't know if you saw all the unbelievable affirmations of who Jesus is. Who are you? Come and see. Are you Elijah? Why would they ask the question, are you Elijah? Because in the sacred text, particularly in Malachi and some in Zechariah, there is a, a promise of Elijah's going to come at the end of the age. Now, it's associated with the judgment theme in Malachi. He's going to come before the terrible and great day of the Lord. But the Old Testament writers did not see the distinctions between the first and second coming of Christ. It was all wrapped together as the latter days. And so they asked the question, are you Elijah, the one that's going to usher in the end of the age? He says, no, I'm not. Oddly enough, later, Jesus identifies him as the forerunner, as Elijah, the one who is to come. He asks, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Are you the one spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 18 in the Old Testament? The one who would be designated as the great prophet who would come and be the final spokesperson for God? No, he said, I am not the great prophet. I am the one of the voice crying in the wilderness, making way the path for the Lord. You read Isaiah chapter 40, and there's all kinds of excitement. As the section in Isaiah is, is, begins this new section in Isaiah with the, the anticipation of the return of the one who will make the path straight, straight to the Lord. And there's excitement in the past, and there's anticipation. And here's this anticipation in Isaiah chapter 40 as he says, no, I am the one who is to come to usher in. I am the one to proceed. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, in Matthew chapter 3, it talks about the anticipation of the forerunner to introduce then the coming of the Messiah. He talks about the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. First encounter with Jesus, he says, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Speak about a prophetic utterance. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone our way, own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of all of us. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter in Isaiah, in the great passage in Isaiah. In all the imagery of the, the, the lambs being sacrificed in the Old Testament, in the, the Passover, and the Day of Atonement, all converge on this unbelievable affirmation that he is the one who has come to take away the sins of the whole world. He also is identified as the one that the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. Isaiah chapter 11, it says the Spirit of God will rest upon who? The Messiah, the Savior, the one to come. And then is described all the character of this one and his kingdom that will be established. And Isaiah 61 says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring the good news to a variety of people who are in need. And he ends the section with he is the chosen one of God. Scattered all throughout the prophets in the, in the poetic books, in Isaiah, the Psalm, the Jeremiah, and Isaiah, it talks about the chosen one, the one who is to come designated by God to usher in the new kingdom. You see, John says, come and see. It's not me. John does what's so appropriate for all of us to do is not to focus attention on us, not to focus attention on him who is the forerunner, but to focus the attention on the one to come and see who is Jesus who is the Savior of the world, and that's our response. Come and see Jesus. There's more encounters. It gets more exciting. Verse 35 through 42 
The question is, what do you want? Come and see. Verse 435, the next day John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, again he says, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard this, say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. You've got to spend time with Jesus. Andrew, Simon, and Peter, his brother, and one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. What do you want? Come and see. Look, the Lamb of God. Again, he raises the issue of Jesus' atonement from Isaiah, the one who gave his life for us. He also says we have found the Messiah, which means the anointed one. We have found the Messiah in Isaiah 61, spelled out also in Isaiah 35, is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring, because the Lord has anointed me, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, freedom to the captives. The Old Testament prophecies unfold with the coming of the Messiah, the long anticipation of the prophets, and they are saying, he is here. There was such excitement, they wanted to spread it, they wanted to come and get their brothers and come and see the one who is truly the anointed one, promised by God so explicitly in the Old Testament. They were so excited, they wanted to come and see. Doesn't end there. Look at the last section, verse 43 through the end. The next day, Jesus decided to leave Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, and Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth? By the way, it was a little stop in the road. There was a much bigger city close by. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, how truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. For truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son, the Son of Man. Here's another loaded expressions of the, 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 the identity of Jesus. Come and see. Can anybody good come from there? You betcha can. We found the one Moses wrote about in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is a prophecy of the one great prophet that will arise, the greatest of all prophets, and, and the in, injunction is to listen to him. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples and, and Elijah and Moses appeared, and God said something in thundering words. He said, God declared, this is my son. Listen to him. 
In Hebrews says, in the past he's spoken through prophets, but in these last days he's spoken through his son who is the heir of all things. And how about the interchange with Nathaniel? You're the son of God. Taken from Psalm chapter 2, which encourages people to worship the Son, give allegiance and worship the Son, is identified in Psalm 2. And of course, the King of Israel is the Davidic promise that's given in Genesis 49 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. The one who would come to would be ultimately the one who is worthy to sit on the throne. Folks, I don't know if you get the impact of all that. This is all right at the beginning of the book of John. He wants them to identify right up front the identity of who Jesus is so they could come and see, so they could experience the reality of Christ. Just look at the listing of this. Jesus is the one who will follow the forerunner that was prophesied. The one who is the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. The one who is the Spirit-empowered, chosen one of God from the powerful message in Isaiah. The one who is the anointed one, spelled out the very things he would do in Isaiah 35 and 61. He is the final prophet. He is the final revelation, the final message. Prophesied way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He is the one worthy of worship and praise in Psalm chapter 2, the Son of God. And he is the fulfillment of the Davidic line of the king. He, folks, is the priest and the offering. The priest who offers himself. He is the priest. He is the great prophet. And he is the king. And right up front in the gospel of John, as he unfolds this great gospel, he wants people to understand and then when they have this personal encounter with the living Messiah, it's exciting what takes place. The secret is out. They want his identity to be proclaimed. Do you sense in the passage the excitement of people as they encounter and they come to understand the reality of who Jesus is? I encourage you this week is to read this again. Read this again. Because who Jesus is makes all the difference in our world. But let me just encourage you in two things. Transformation occurs when we find Jesus as the Savior. Folks, there is no other transformation process that will take place other than rooted in Jesus. There is no other path that's going to lead you to true transformation and change other than a deep abiding relationship with the living Christ, and we must come and see him. We must understand the reality of who he is and what he came to do. And folks, I hope there's an excitement that you still have deep in your soul and the excitement of knowing and revisiting over and over again who Jesus is. Transformation can only occur when people find the Savior. Transformation also can occur in people's lives when we introduce them to Jesus. When we, have, when we realize who Jesus is, there's this, this kind of excitement of knowing who Jesus is, and if we understand that correctly, it's contagious. It's contagious because we want other people to come and see. We want to introduce people to Jesus. And if you don't have that excitement and you don't have that inner drive that says, I want to, to people to come and see, you need to go back and be rediscovered Jesus in your life. You need to go back and you look at these passages and you see who he is. 
And you see the powerful reality of who Christ is. If that doesn't well up incitement in you, how can we be agents of coming and seeing for the Savior? And folks, we are only witnesses of the true Savior. We don't save anybody. We convey the stories of people. Isn't it great to convey the stories of people who we have said, come and see, and they come and they experience Christ. We can tell the stories with one another about the Savior. I just talked through in Wednesday night the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. They brim with excitement. When the sheep was lost, the shepherd went, and when he found him, he carried him on his shoulders with excitement. They went back, and they had an over-the-top party. It's over-the-top, a celebration for the one that was found and that came home. The woman lost a coin, maybe one of ten, sweeps through the whole house until she finds the coin. She finds it. She calls all her friends together, and they have a celebration. They have a celebration because the the coin was found. And the most significant one of all is the the two lost sons and the one that came home. There was only one that came home. And when he was ready to see his father who ran out to him and he was ready to give his religious confession, and it was a religious confession, "I I will pay you back, father. His father didn't even care less about his confession. He wasn't even listening. But you know why? Because all he cared about was that his son came home. That's all that mattered to him. I don't think we should spend a whole lot of time thinking about or policing the behavior of non-Christians. For society's sake, maybe, but not for kingdom's sake. Because we ought not to expect non-Christians to act in any way Christianly. Maybe because they have the image of God in creation, there will be some correlation there, but we, I don't think that's the point. We ought not to spend our time trying to police or concern ourselves with their behavior. There's one concern, the most predominant concern. They come home. They come home. They come home. And the excitement of seeing people come to encounter Jesus like these early believers. The excitement when they realize who Jesus is wells up in their soul and they can't help but say, come and see. And that's our call. That's our call as a church to be a come and see church. A come and see church where we have such excitement and all we care about that the burning of our hearts is that people come home. They come home to the Savior. Amen. Alicia, come on. Please. Earlier this week, Pastor Mark asked me to sit in the chair and share a story of transformation. And um, all week I've been thinking, what is the story that I'm going to choose to share up here? Because there's a lot of stories um, in my life where God has um, entered in in a way and transformed something um, in me or in the world around me. Um, but what kept coming to mind this week is this phrase that I hear a lot in the, in the realm of leadership, which is, you can't be what you can't see. And I remember that when I first came to know Christ, I almost immediately, like two weeks later, um, heard my call to youth ministry. 
And uh, part of it was because I had a powerfully strong female youth pastor um, who showed me what it looked like to be a youth pastor. Um, But fast forward into seminary, when you enter seminary um, at North Park, which is the seminary um, for our denomination, um, there's a lot of ways that you can kind of connect to the denomination through your seminary time. And at the very end of seminary, um, one of the options is that you can go through this interview process um, that they call the call process. It's the beginning of finding your call to a church. And what they do is they bring in all of the superintendents and administrators from the covenant um, into the seminary and you meet individually with um, groups of administrators, um, which let me just tell you right now is terrifying. So you have just spent three years in seminary forming, um, hearing about theology, writing papers, um, forming your ideas on what ministry looks like and what it could look like in your future, and then you sit down at a table with four to five um, administrators or superintendents. And they sit around and they ask you questions about who you are, how God called um, you into ministry, and then what you want to do with the rest of your ministry career. And when I went through it, I was 27. Um, I had just finished seminary, but I had already been in full-time ministry for three years before I'd gone to seminary. So I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what I was like going into. I'd been in ministry since I graduated high school. And um, I felt I felt really good about that moment. And it went, they all went really well until I got to the very last one. And in the very last one, um, the superintendent of uh, the Southwest Conference? No, it's one of the Pacific Southwest Conference. Um, His name at the time, the superintendent at the time, his name is Ephraim Smith. He's currently a pastor at another church now, Um, but he sat there and he read my thing and he listened to the thing and he uh, pointed out to me, he said, can I just tell you a little bit about my reflections of this week? It was one of the last time slots. They had been met with basically everyone in my class. And he said, I just want to tell you an observation that um, most of the people that come in here are younger than you and have less experience than you, but have dreams that are far bigger than yours. What, what's happening here? <laughs> and I was like, um, I don't, I don't know. Um, and he said, why don't you want to work in, uh, why don't you want to work in the denominational office? And I was like, because um, that doesn't sound very fun to me. <laughs> um, and he kept like pushing and pushing all these questions. Why don't you want to do this? Why don't you want to do that? And I kept coming up with things like, well, I don't think I'm ready yet, or I'm too young, or um, no one like me is in that, uh, that field or that realm of ministry. Um, and he said, here's the thing. I would have accepted the answer um, that you felt very called to what you came and told us what you want to do. I do not accept um, that you're not ready, that you're too young, that no one looks like you. He's like, I don't accept any of those answers. Best youth pastor I can be. But his point wasn't that I shouldn't be a youth pastor. Long story short, eventually uh, I end up here at Roseville Covenant, but I remember that moment and be who I created you to be. And through that process and through the years after that, I've Um, as being able to uh, remind me to be the trailblazer that not only reminder in me, because every time I like get past one aspect of it, another aspect 
I'm changed moment is that um, I have to remember to turn down of um, being me and remember that as I lead, as I do ministry, me to be. Um, and it's still a transformation that I continue to um, um, to be able to uh, to interact with God, to spend some time asking yourself in your life that you'd like to see some transformation in this Lenten season.